0: Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast, a show focused on inspiring and empowering you to become a better writer. Come along as we deconstruct the tips, routines, and motivations of your favorite authors. In the end, it's all about getting your story onto the page. Welcome to episode 108, How J.A. Jantz. Right. So before we get started, just a very quick announcement. I and the podcast, we're going to be going on a little bit of a spring break. So I have had a real wild run over the past six months or so from having some really unfortunate COVID news in my media family to moving to just absolute craziness across the board. And one thing I've realized is I'm a little burned out. I'm a little tired, and so I'm going to take a season here, um, maybe a month or so, and just kind of recover. I'm going to be posting some episodes and sharing some additional thoughts just on the writing life within that time frame, but we will not be releasing any interviews for a month-ish or so, and I'm not even going to commit to a date when we come back, only because I want to give myself lots of love, lots of time to recover, get my energy back, Maybe feel like a human again. And I know so many of you out there, you get this, you know how it feels, and I want to promote it in myself. And I want to share it with you. If you need a break from writing, if you need to kind of invest in yourself, I say you do it. So with that said, this will be episode 108, J.A. Jantz. And I've had J.A. Jantz on before. And if you listen to that interview, you know she is an absolute fountain of writing wisdom after 60 books and a lifetime of publishing this is a person like jay is a person you could just listen to over and over and over again and always learn something new you know i believe a big value i have is to look at the people who have gone before us the people who have gone down the path you want to go down and learn from them learn from their wisdom and listen to them You couldn't pick a better person to listen to than J.A. Jantz. And I want to say thank you so much to her time for this interview. It was an absolute pleasure. And now, my friends, episode 108 with J.A. Jantz. Welcome to the How Writers Write podcast. I am your host, Brian, and we have a returning guest today all the way back from episode 63. Today's guest is J.A. Jantz. J.A. Jantz is the New York Times bestselling author of more than 60 novels. Last time I said 30, and I believe you corrected me and said it was 60, including the Allie Reynolds series, the J.P. Beaumont series, and the Joanna Brady series, as well as five interrelated Southwestern thrillers featuring the Walker family. Jay's newest novel, Nothing to Lose, which is a J.P. Beaumont novel, will be released on February 22nd, 2022, at least in the United States. I'm so happy to have you back on the show again for the second time. Welcome, welcome, welcome.
1: I'm happy to be here. Thank you.
0: Yeah, there, I was... um I listened to the episode and I was reflecting on all the ways that the world has changed even in the past year. And I was like, we've entered a time warp. Everything seems like time is going fast and also going nowhere at all. So it's, it's fun to be able to connect with you again. So um, before we started recording, uh, you had a request, which was to flip up the script a little bit. This is the first time I'm doing this. And to start with one of the final questions that I always ask first, start off with that. And the question that you wanted to talk about first was, if you had a spirit book which book would it be? And again, the spirit book is like, if you were able to you know, die and be reincarnated as a book, this is the book you would pick. Why did you want to start out with that one?
1: Because I grew up in Bisbee, Arizona. Bisbee, Arizona is in the very Southern part of Arizona. And it's behind a screen of mountains, the Mule Mountains. So it took a long time for television to make it over the mountains and down through the canyons into the neighborhoods of Bisbee. And so when I was growing up on those long evenings when we didn't have TV, our father read to us from a book he was given when he was 10 years old. It's called The Treasury of the Familiar, and it's an anthology of poetry. and. Those, those were the stories that peopled my life. Uh, mm-hmm. It was six men of Indistan to learning must, must were inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation could satisfy his mind. Um, in yon straight path, a thousand can well be stopped by three. Now who will stand on either hand and keep the bridge with me? That was Horatius at the bridge, saving the city of, of Rome. Um, the wreck of the Hesperus, the song of the shirt. Those, those stories resonated with me as a child. And if I were going to be in a book, I would like to be able to wander through that book page by page, poem by poem. Mm and hear my father's voice reading to us again.
0: Oh. It's kind of left me a little, like, speechless in a way. That's really, I mean, it's really beautiful. I think about um, the power of story as we think about, like, the formative parts of our life.
1: Well, there, there, there's nothing more heroic in my mind then Horatius, the gatekeeper, yeah. picking up his sword and saying, "Okay, who else is going to help me?" And those three guys go out, and and at the very last minute, two of them run back. Horatius hangs in there for one last fight, and then he dives into into the raging river and eventually is able to swim to shore. And if, I'm I'm getting goosebumps mm. as I'm telling you this story. Because that story always gave me goosebumps when we got to the end of it
0: what what did it what did it mean for your life as you look back that that story like that's a powerful story to be so central like what did what did that change that that is the story you come back
1: to well in that story you're you very clearly have the sense of good and evil uh the hero, the villain, the villain is false Sextus who had betrayed Rome and was there egging their enemies on when what he really is, is a coward. And that's what storytelling has always been for me. You, you find good and you find evil. And in the world of murder mysteries, evil eventually overcomes evil is evident, eventually mm-hmm. overcome by good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, I, I, I hope we can unpack this a little bit more. Like if you think that that story has taught you something and it's something that in the same way, hearing that impressed upon you, something really powerful, really resonant. I can see it in your face. It's a very powerful story and powerful memory. Like what, what lesson would you then want to share to the people listening? that you took from that story
1: well stand up stand up and mm. and go out there I, my friend joe kenda in his in discussing his new series american detective says i always stood up but i'm not the only one who stood up and i try to create characters who stand up mm.
0: And, like, really oh, tactically...
1: I need to tell you, yeah. there are some kids in our family, and I'm the one who inherited that copy of The Treasure of the Familiar. And it's tattered and taped together with duct tape, <laughs> but it is still a treasure.
0: Is it? Is it still in print? Do you know if you can, like, still get copies of it?
1: Yes, actually, someone... Someone wrote to me that they ordered their own copy recently. Mm-hmm. I, I'm sure they got it from a used bookstore. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let let's let's go back to that topic of standing up in characters because I I really like that. Just this morning I I was thinking a lot about my main character and thinking about just kind of trying to get down to like the, the bottom essence of the character. And it and it sounds like that kind of idea of standing up has resonance for you. Like that's an important part of your characters. I'm just why are you going to unpack it? Like, what do you mean, stand up?
1: Well, that that was something I learned from my mother, too. She always said, stand alone. Eventually, the crowd may fall. So in that regard, she yeah. and my dad were on the same page. Yeah,
0: they really raised but a rebel. My goodness.
1: <laughs> but the, something that's really interesting to me is Beaumont is coming out in 2022. Beaumont number 25. Mm-hmm. I sat down to write Beaumont number one in the fall of 1982. Forty years ago. Forty years ago. Wow. Uh, I had I had written one book that never sold to anybody, and I decided. It my agent actually said, well, why don't you try writing something that is completely fiction? I was living in Seattle. I don't set it in Seattle, even though I had barely moved there. So in the fall of 82, I set out to write this book. And I decided I was going to use a Seattle Homicide Cop. And I gave him a name. And I gave him a place to live. And I gave him a job. And then... I waited to see what he was going to do, and it turns out he wouldn't do a thing, not a thing. And so in March, six months into the process, I sent my kids to a a camp, Camp Orcala, for five days, and then I put myself on the train to go to uh, Portland and spend some time with a friend from my years in the life insurance business. So I got on the train with a fistful of pens, ballpoint pens, and a stack of blue line notebooks. I didn't have a computer then. And as the train pulled out of the King Street station, I thought, what would happen if I told this story through the detective's point of view? So I got out of pen, I got out of notebook. Mm-hmm. And I wrote the words, she might have been a cute kid once. That was hard to tell now. She was dead. <laughs> as soon as I wrote those words, those two short sentences, there I was on the backside of Seattle's Magnolia Bluff. I was walking a crime scene mm-hmm. in J.P. Beaumont's shoes. I was seeing it through his eyes. I was hearing what he heard. I heard what not only what other people said to him and what he said to them but i also was hearing what he said to himself and uh, over the next 5 days i wrote 30,000 words by hand i had oh blistered my writing fingers oh my gosh but the story, the story had was constructed in my head but until i found the right point of view i couldn't tell that story The thing that's interesting is Beau and I, 40 years later, are still character and author, and we're still walking places together. And when I sat down to write Nothing to Lose, Beaumont number 25, within a matter of paragraphs, I was back in Beaumont's world. I was back hearing what he was thinking, and it turns out (laughs) he starts nothing to lose by having to deal with a complex plumbing problem. That is (laughs) all his fault. (laughs) And one of the, one of the things about the way I write books is little pieces of my own history end up woven into the books. And when you see that plumbing problem and nothing to lose, believe me, I've been there, done that, got the t-shirt. It's a bad idea to flush Irish wolfhound number twos that have frozen down indoor plumbing.
0: Oh my. (laughs) That's, that's one of those specific details too, that just like opens up a narrative because you're like, wait to do what? Like it's so specific and so quirky that you're like, Oh my gosh, where in the world did this come from?
1: (laughs) But Bo's reaction to that is, is the, the same kind of reaction he would have, would have done in book number one. So on the one hand, he's the same guy, but he's aged 40 years in the process. And one of the things, I, I grew up reading Johnny D. McDonald's, Travis McGee books and those were, Travis McGee never changed. He always lived in the same place. He always, some sweet young thing would come wandering down the street and he, she'd lead him down the primrose path. And in the next book, he fell for the next sweet young thing. And I wanted Beau to change and grow. And I, I wanted things that happened to him in one book to impact what happened in the next book. In, in uh, Nothing to Lose, we encountered characters that appeared in Beaumont number 14. So in, in terms of fiction, close to 20 years have passed Mm. since that book happened. And so Beau has changed. The people have changed, but I fell into a trap in Okay. Let me go back. Okay. I was once asked to take part in a writer's conference. And as part of the writer's conference, I was required to read 25 pages of manuscripts from various participants and then spend half an hour in the barrel speaking with people who wrote it. And one of the manuscripts I received was a time-traveling genre-jumping Murder mystery
0: that's a mouthful
1: uh, well it seemed it occurred to me that if people were smart enough to do time traveling, they probably wouldn't be doing it carrying around three inch paper files that was mm-hmm. that was <laughs> egregious error number one all of the characters had very ethnic sounding names, but there was nothing in what they did that that lent itself to their ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So then there was one character who didn't have who didn't have any uh, name. It was female officer number two. So I asked the author. I said, "Why why is this character female officer number two? And he said, "Well, when I did my a search and replace. I must have missed her. And I said, wait a minute, that's how you name characters using search and replace? You're an author. If you're going to introduce your char- a character, you need to know everything about them, where they were born, how they were raised. Uh, did they grow up in a one-parent or a two-parent family? It were all of these background things that you need to know. And so after giving him the benefit of my those <laughs> of experience, he looked at me and he said, well, is it still publishable? Well, no, it wasn't publishable. But when I was writing Nothing to Lose, I fell into that same trap mm. because here I was dealing with characters who had only been names in breach of duty, and I suddenly had to give them background. I suddenly had to give them histories. I suddenly had to make them into living, breathing beings and and that's I think that's what's that's what you've got to do as a writer is make the character live and breathe
0: you know that's something I hear a lot on the show a lot of people a lot of authors they start with character that's really like the the jumping off point for them for a novel for a big a bigger work of fiction sometimes the shorter works start in different ways but big work of fiction like a novel it's normally very much like a character that they're following. And I hear a lot this idea of like, you have to know your character, know your character, know your character. But I don't know if I've ever heard specifically, like, what does that mean? Like to you, like, what does it mean to know them? Like, how do you actually literally go through the process of getting to know, and I should put getting to know in like parentheses, like getting to know a character?
1: Well, I learned that Bo was a cop I learned that he was, uh, that he loved doing crossword puzzles. I learned that he hated uh, technology, but he's gradually assented to technology. But one of the most interesting things about creating that character is something I put in without really noticing it. I spent 18 years of my life with a husband who died of chronic alcoholism at age 42, a year and a half after I divorced him. Because I wasn't allowed in the creative writing program at the U of A in 1962, because I was 64, because I was a girl, uh, I never had anybody tell me, you have to write what you know, but I I sort of figured that out. So when I started writing about JP Beaumont, he was a a cop. He couldn't work all the time, so he needed to be able, he he needed to have something else to occupy his non-working hours. Well. It so happened that I knew a lot about drinking, so I had mm-hmm. him do the same kind of drinking that I had lived with all those years. And it, as far as the, the conscious writer part of me was, it was that was just stage business. It was sort of like in British uh, period pieces where they serve tea—you know, something for people to do with their hands while they're talking. Four books down the line. I was at a signing in in Portland, it turns out, and a lady came up to the table and she said, you know, Bo Bo drinks every day. He has a drink of choice. It's starting to interfere with his work. Does J.P. Beaumont have a problem? I said, you know, these are books. (laughs) (laughs) But in the course of that set of signings, six other people asked me that same question, and all of a sudden it dawned on me. He really did have a problem, and my readers figured it out mm. before I did. Mm. And I've I've had people who've written to me telling me that reading about Bo and watching him deal with that issue in the background helped them deal with their own issue. And mm. it was sort of like fiction, seeing the story in fiction, wormed its way around their own denial and helped them see that they, too, had an issue. But that, that part of Bo's character, which is an important part of his character, (sighs) went in by magic. It didn't go in because I was really (sighs) concentrating on it and saying, oh, I'm going to write this and maybe people will. That didn't happen. It was, it really was magic. And I, that's one of the things, about writing is the magic that happens when you're not looking.
0: Mm. That's a really beautiful way to put it. I like that. Um let's let's change gears a little bit. I want to I want to move on to a different topic with you. One of the things I've been wondering about lately is why are we as people attracted to reading about and in some ways being entertained by crime. So let me let me unpack that, right? You know, true crime and crime novels and detective novels, they often expose us to really awful things that happen to people and, you know, all, and all manner of terrible things. And yet, there's something about it that's so alluring. And so many people, I mean, myself included, I just got into watching interrogation videos of murder suspects. And for some reason, I am captivated by it. Like, just absolutely captivated and I took a step back and wondered what in the world is fascinating me about this and being someone who's written a lot of crime novels and have kind of dealt into this kind of world of world of murder and all this bad stuff I'm wondering what your thoughts would be on that
1: well I think it it goes back to what I said about Horatius at the bridge it's good and evil murder Murder is the most evil thing one human being can do to another human being and we're all hoping that there's going to be somebody out there to stand up
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah that's that that's interesting so so do you think we are attracted? like people are attracted to stories with murder and and with the the dark stuff because we, we want to not be there? Is there a fascination that, that goes beyond that?
1: I don't know. If, if you look at the Harry Potter books, the Harry Potter books are, again, all about good and evil. Harry Harry is the, the one who stands up, and evil is out there ready to pounce at any moment, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I think there's something about that 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 we all need. We we all need to see see those things playing out in our minds. I, I'm not sure why. Yeah, but but uh, I know I watch a lot of crime dramas on TV. I, I watch a lot of true crime, because I, I use that mm-hmm. to follow changes in forensics, like the the family genealogy that is making a bunch of crooks who think they got away with murder decades ago mm-hmm. <laughs> think twice about whether or not they're safe. That's pretty wonderful. Uh, but uh, I just, I think, I think part of it is it's good and evil, but it's also the magic of storytelling because stories have been with us. When, when we were living in caves, mm-hmm. we used stories to, to bide our time to get through the cold, awful winters until summer and spring came again. On, on the reservation where I taught for a number of years. I was a K through 12 librarian for five years on the Tahona Autumn. Their stories are winter telling tales and you're only allowed to tell them between the middle of November and the middle of March. Hmm. Because if if a, a snake or lizard overhears a story it can swallow they can swallow the storyteller's luck and bring them harm. So so you have to and so I think a lot of it goes back to the winter telling tales. And I think that's one of the reasons we all find such such comfort in reading
0: yeah. stories. Yeah. It's one of those questions that just doesn't have a direct answer. Like I think about my daughters. Um, you know, when they were younger, when they first started playing like really deep imaginative play, those early years, really quickly it went dark, like super quickly. And they were not like, we didn't expose them to stuff. They just kind of naturally gravitated towards the, the entire mosaic of humanity, not just what had been a really pleasant childhood for them. And so it's always been this interesting question of like our global draw to the dark parts the, the 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 other side I don't know Last question for you before we get into our final questions um, kind of last last part of questions you've been writing for a really long time um, you you have made a run at it <laughs> by any measure by any by any stretch you have made a run at it and to do anything for a really long time is difficult anything at all to work one job for a long time is difficult to work something like writing, for a long time is extra difficult. And I'm wondering, as you look back on the years, what is it, what did you practice or what were you able to do that kept you going? Because I'm sure there were lots of points along there that you're like, forget it, I'm
1: gonna quit. I can't think of a time Hmm. when I said forget it, I wanna quit. Never once. No.
0: Hmm. What about in hard times? Like cert- certainly there were there were challenging times throughout the years. I'm
1: having a challenging time right now. I'm yeah. writing a book that has the ending is eluding me, and it's you'd think that after all these years and all these books writing would be easy, but writing is never easy. Writing is hard. I think it's interesting that in these two years. Where we've been robbed of the holidays. Mm-hmm. I've written three books that all have the holidays happening in them. <laughs> <laughs> you can't take away Christmas, and <laughs> I can have Christmas in fiction if I want to. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, writing, writing doesn't get easy, and I think people who think that, I'm, I'm always offended by when people call me prolific because prolific implies that you just pop books out right and left us. No, it's no effort. It's all easy peasy. And so the word prolific just always pisses me off. (laughs) Noted. I
0: will not say that. Wow. Well, um, we've kind of hit the part of our show where I get to ask you my final, it should be six, but now we're going to do final five questions. You
1: robbed me the first you, you, I'm sorry.
0: You robbed me of one of them, which is okay. But you know what? I'm tickled. I'm tickled. I've never had somebody ask to move up a question. So I'm going to take that as a good sign, a good thing. Um, so I'm going to ask you these final five questions. And if you remember, I asked these questions because a huge part of the show is to reinforce the idea to all the listeners out there that the most important thing for you as the writer is to learn how you create and every single person's different. There is no two writers who write the same. That's just not the way this game works. And I'm hoping that these answers make you laugh or give you some inspiration, but also reinforce that we've never had two writers say the same thing. Every single writer I've had and asked these questions to, um, I think this is the 110th interview I've done is all different, every single one. So with that said, let's dive into the first question, which is, as a storyteller, what do you view as your role in this world?
1: My role is to entertain the highest praise I can receive. I, The first book came out, and we went on a Rick Steves tour, and we met a couple, and became friends with them. And as we were leaving Paris, we went to a bookstore. I found a copy of uh, Unto Proven Guilty. It signed it and gave it to them. The following, um, a few months later, the woman came down with uh, a terrible infection that caused her to be in a hyperbaric chamber and in intensive care for for like a a very long time. And at some point I received a letter from the husband and he said, Dear Judy, I have just finished reading your book. I don't know how I would have gotten through these weeks Mm. if I hadn't had your story to read. That's why I write.
0: Really beautiful. Okay, second question: What is the one word that best describes you? Productive. Productive.
1: Not prolific. I was going
0: to say not prolific.
1: <laughs> I almost, I almost said not prolific, but I was like, I'm not even going to say it. I'm not even going to bring the word up. Productive. Okay, another, another <laughs> word would be determined. Yeah. Uh, don't tell me I can't do it because I, by God, will figure out a way to do it anyway. Yeah.
0: yeah, I can see that real strong. <laughs> uh, we're going to skip the third question because it's a spirit book question. Uh, question number four Is there a specific tool, and it can be anything at all pencil, software, chair, coffee, tea, anything that you absolutely must have to write?
1: I need coffee. I need a mm-hmm. laptop, computer. Uh, I wrote. Two books, two manuscripts by hand, before I bought my computer, and uh, I don't miss. I so I never got this idea that you had to write in longhand on legal pad. Mm-hmm. Books. So I have. I use laptops. I have. I'm six one. I have very long thighs, so my laptop fits on my lap. And as I'm typing, my wrists are always supported, so I've had no problem with uh, carpal tunnel. And, and I always have coffee at my side.
0: That's the winning combo, right? Coffee and a laptop you can do anything. Um, okay, question number four. How do you deal with the constant ups and downs of the writing life?
1: I walk 10,000 steps a day.
0: That's awesome.
1: I actually, let is me that, check.
0: Is that like a treadmill or is that like
1: outside? Uh, it's I. It's outside when it's not too cold or not too hot. Yeah. I have my 10 for today.
0: And I know you split time. You You also live a little bit in Arizona. Is that correct?
1: Uh, no, we sold our, our two okay. songs just before the pandemic. Okay. And today, I'm at $15,200,000. Yes, I started walking 6 years ago and I'm still walking. Still walking, that's, no riding.
0: That's got to be like some distance to the moon. I'd love to know
1: that math like I don't, I don't know what what it is. They, they tell me how many trips it is back and forth from Chicago to New York and I don't right. care. You're on the wrong side of the Mississippi to worry about that. Yeah, right.
0: right. Uh,
1: but it's uh it's across the United States and probably out into the Pacific.
0: Right. That's, that's one thing. That's one thing I haven't really talked about enough, but I think is really important, which is the the role of the writer with their, their body and their physical help and how much the body and how we access the body can impact the writing life and how it's such a tool. You know, a lot of times we, we don't think of the body as being a tool to work through things and storytelling and that's um, a miss miss for me it's a, it's a topic that I think deserves a well, deep dive though
1: when i was out walking today i was i i write a weekly blog and my blog posts every friday and it's sort of i in the two years of the pandemic i've tried to have it be uh, a note of good cheer last week it was about my mother wearing a one of those groucho marks rubber masks to hang clothes on the clothesline because she was getting, in Arizona, she was getting little cancer spots on her nose. Oh, my. And that blog made people laugh. This week, it's about the book coming out. And uh, so I, while I was out walking, I was thinking about the words I was going to use to put into this week's blog. Yeah. It's thinking time and walking time together.
0: Yeah, I, I'm all for it. I'm all for it. Okay, last question for you. If you could give one piece of advice to new writers out there, what would it be?
1: Well, it's the piece of advice that David Graham gave me. David Graham is the guy who sold me my uh, first computer, a dual floppy Eagle with 128K of (laughs) memory. And he fixed it so that each morning when I Booted up the computer, these were the words that came across the screen. A writer is someone who has written today. Mm. And if you've written today, you're a writer.
0: Mm. It's a lot, a lot of punch in those words. A lot of punch. Um, Before we break, if people want to find you, learn more about you, connect with you online, where do you tend to hang out? Are you on any of the social channels? where do you spend okay. your time
1: I'm on the social channels i if people write to me my email address is on my website jhans.com. Uh, I respond to emails grumpy emails tend to go to the bottom of the stack <laughs> I read the comment lines on on Facebook and uh, and um, my blog on the on the website, but I don't really plug into all the other social media because it takes up too much time. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Is not the truth. That is not the truth. Well, um, nothing to lose comes out. Uh, we will we will publish this episode really close to when the when it comes out. I don't know what day February twenty second is, but we will put this episode out right around that time. Yeah, so we'll put it out pretty close. Nothing to Lose Out, February 22nd, 2022. It's so good to connect with you again. and going to talk with you about the writing life and talk to such a and productive...
1: What's that? And Horatius at the Bridge. Oh,
0: I love that. I'm going to look that book up. I mean, like that's right up my alley. So I was like, I want to see if I can find it in print. Um, and to talk to such a productive writer... <laughs> Make sure I get those words right. It's always such a pleasure to chat with you and to hear how your writing life has come around and learn so much from you. And, um, you know, it's just, it's always such a pleasure. So thank you so much for your time. This has been great.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you.
0: Thank you again to J.A. for her time. If you haven't yet, please uh, check me out on Twitter, although I have not been tweeting much, or Instagram. I've not been posting much. Just chalk that up to that whole burnout thing (laughs) across the board. I'd still love to hear from you, though. Also, you can leave us a rating and review on iTunes. I always read those, and they always make me smile. Last thing I want to say is thank you so much for listening to the podcast, and I hope you have such a wonderful week of writing.